Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you very much for joining me once again. Today, we have an interview with a member of the content group staff, someone who's just joined us. And it's going to be interesting because this particular person has a similar background to me and wonderful broad experience across uh, the federal government as well and in journalism. So we'll be having that conversation in just a moment. But before we do that, we start the program as we do each week with the definition Content communication is a strategic, measurable and accountable business process that relies on the creation, curation and distribution of useful, relevant and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen and or stakeholder action. So to my guest today, Gillian Field works here at Content Group now, but she has considerable experience in internal and corporate communications at the federal government in Australia. She was the Director of Internal and Corporate Communication at the Department of Agriculture. She held a similar role at the Department of Defence for three years and also worked as the Manager of Internal Communication at Centrelink. But she also worked as the Manager of Corporate Communication at the local water utility and was a journalist for just about 10 years, first of all in Tasmania, but then uh, here in Canberra with the Canberra Times. And she joins me now in the studio. Gillian, welcome to In Transition. Thank you very much, David. And welcome to Content Group. And thank you very much for that too, David. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. It's um, We've got a big job and we won't actually go into the details of the job we're working on at the moment because we don't have the um, uh, permission of our client to be talking about it, but it is a very big job uh, at the Department of Defence here in Australia and you'll be you know, acquitting yourself and your skills uh, to to get some great outcomes there for our clients, but let's let's go back and let's go back in time a little bit and uh, talk about journalism and your time in journalism. What made you want to become a journalist? Well, what made me want to become a journalist is that it was quite obvious to me by the end of my education process that one of the things I did best was put a sentence together. Okay. And I was told in high school that if I could do nothing else with my career, I could write. And so the more I thought about this after I left school, the more I thought, well, really, I enjoy writing. It's a useful skill. It's um, I'm very interested in what goes on in the world and in how it's how, how it's positioned. I've always been a big reader. I love newspapers. Mm. And so I decided I would try and get a job in a newspaper. Did you take that as a positive thing when your advisors or the school counsellors said, well, Gillian, at least you can write? <laughs> Were you terrible at everything else? Look, I, I actually feel he meant it in a good way and I think anybody who marks hundreds and hundreds of essays for a living and finds somebody who can put a sentence together yeah. who needs really very little help to get a point across... Um, 
I, I thought that was a good thing. Um, I was also told at the time that you could never accuse me of overwriting, uh-huh. and I think that is that was another thing that made me think perhaps journalism was a good way to go because, as you know yourself, David, yeah. the fewer words you can say something in, the better. Correct. Um, the clearer you are, the more concise you are when you're trying to get an idea across, then really it's a win-win for everybody, isn't it? What did you like about being a journalist? What did I like about being a journalist? I really enjoy having the information in front of me that I have collected through one means or another and being able to sort it through and turn it into a story. Yeah. And that was um, very obvious to me when I did the court report around for the Canberra Times over at the Supreme Magistrates Courts when sometimes you would have to spend days or even weeks gathering information about a particular case or a particular trial You'd have to sit through legal arguments. You'd have to sit through witness after witness, some of which were interesting, some of which were not. And you'd have to make sure that you wrote a really interesting, balanced story at the end of it. And you couldn't get it wrong. And you could not get it wrong. And if you did get it wrong, then occasionally you would be told so by the judge from the bench, which is very embarrassing, though fortunately it never happened to me. And when you got it right, also sometimes that was acknowledged too. And and that... um, I love that process. I love the process of being able to choose which stories I would cover and then perhaps even be in and out of a case for nine weeks as I was at one stage and then at the end of that have to sit down and write a really, really good tight 25 paragraphs about what the case was about and why it was interesting. And, um, yeah, I think that's that's what I liked best was that crafting of the story at the end of the process. Mm. I think some people are very good reporters, but they can't write. Some people can write, but the reporting, collecting information Didn't side the, of it... Not, not the nose for the not story. Not the nose for the story. Yeah. Um, I think um, certainly with the legal stuff, I had quite a good nose from the, for the story, but I think I've always been more on the writer side of it than, mm-hmm. than the reporter side. Now, now, you moved on from there um, after a, you know, a, a good solid career um, and you decided to move into corporate communications. Yes. What drove that? Well, a number of things. Um, first of all, I think I just really wanted to change and to see what more I could do with my, my skills. Um, and what, and sorry, just to interrupt you there, what would you have summarised those skills as being when you were sitting in that interview with the, uh, the water utility? What was it that you were going to do for them that was going to create value? Well, originally I was going to help them manage their media and make sure that their stories about the water utility and what it did and how it did it and why it was good were properly managed in the process of them becoming public. Mm-hmm. Um, it was my first corporate communication job and it was at a time when I think the skill and the profession of communication was not very well developed. Yeah. So initially it was seen very much as a media manager role and that was an advantage for me because the media that I was dealing with at the time were people that I knew very well who'd yeah. been alongside me at courts and um, I was able to talk to them and, and in a language that they understood. Yeah. And, and they understood. trusted you. And they trusted me. But as time went on, you we kind of looked for more and more innovative ways to get the stories across. Um, so we would um, very early on in 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 the, this this kind of um, practice, we would package stories up. 
we would write the media release, we would write the story for them sometimes, we would provide them with vision because, um, as you well know, David, you don't get a story run on television without the vision. At that time, there were quite a number and range of, of um, TV channels in, the, in Canberra. Of course, so there aren't so many anymore, but um, one thing that was in short supply was... Um, the people that operated the cameras, for instance. Yeah, right. So if you could actually pay somebody yeah. to package up some lovely vision for them, they would use it and it was a relief to them because it was one less job to cover during the day. Hmm. And because I could write like a journalist, quite often we got um, the stories that were run with, were, you know, very close to, to what yeah, what, what, what you wanted. wanted to put forward. Yeah. What's the secret of getting an audience's attention? Oh, look, I, th- I think it's a classic tenant of journalism. You have to you have to have the nose to pick the story and to tell the story right up top. You have to be able to see what's relevant to them and and explain it to them and hook them as soon as you can in the process. Um, I think um, the training at the Canberra Times was very good for that. Um, we, as little baby journalists, would often be the ones to do the briefs for the paper and the, the time where you had, you know, 20, yeah. 10 briefs down the side of, 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 the, of the, the page and we would have 10 stories that were pulled off the wires or Reuters or whatever and we had to turn them into briefs and some of them were very long and it was just the craft of picking out of those stories what people really needed to know. And, and did you have them. a process or did you develop a process that helped you to apply that task? Was it, were there questions that you asked yourself that had to be answered in order for you to be able to take, you know, a page worth of information and turn it into a paragraph? Look, I think um, at the time there, it was probably at that stage, it was a lot of trial and error and it was being taught a craft by the older, more senior journalists. Yeah. Who, I mean, my news editor at the time would say to me, well, what does Mrs. Cambar want to know? Yeah. What does Mrs. Cambar need to know about this? And so you would go through yourself asking the questions of relevance and interest. But that's an interesting point, though, isn't it? Because what it's about, that question is about, well, what does the audience want mm. to know? So it really fundamentally, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tenant not only of journalism but of all successful communication that it is about the audience always. It is, and that is why I think at this stage in my career, after 25 years nearly in corporate communication, I will still look at a piece of copy, whether it's written by a journalist, written by a staff member in here, written by someone at at work, and say, well, what is the point of this? What is it really that we're trying to get across to people? What do they need to know out of this? Yeah. Now, Lisa, and interestingly on your career as well, as you sort of, you know, you were in corporate communications there and obviously that was a, a media responsibility. But where you've really built your reputation and your expertise is in this internal communication space, which is obviously fundamentally important to the development of a high-performance culture, effective organisation, but often something that is really misunderstood not valued, you know, parked into the corner. And, you know, it really is like if if communications and external communications is the poor relation, what is internal communication? It's almost... Internal communication <laughs> is extremely important and it is often overlooked and misunderstood, as you say. Yeah. 
But one of the reasons, apart from being a little bit sick of answering phone calls from journalists at 10 o'clock at night, one of the reasons I moved into internal um, communication was because after ACTU, I think I really became interested in organisations and how they worked and how they did the job. Yeah. And uh, once you be once you pick up that interest, um, you, you look at almost the, the, the anthropology of an organisation, how yeah. it operates, um, how it talks to itself to get the job done, you start to become more and more interested in internal communication and the importance of it. Because that's interesting. That was part of your degree that you did yeah. at the Australian National University, wasn't it? That's right. So was that organisational anthropology or was it just it was cultural general? anthropology. Cultural. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But the principles are the same. But the, the principles are the, are the same and, and, and you do end up looking at an organisation like uh, its own culture and seeing what is the same and what is different when you look at it. So, so it's not a one-size-fits-all approach with internal comms, but the principles that you apply are the same. Just sometimes the outcomes are a little bit different depending on, on the difference of the organisation. Mm. I mean, I've, everybody still wants to know about um, an issue to do with change, what's in it for them. It's a matter of how you get that information across to them. You always need leaders to step up and deliver strategic messaging. It's about how leaders do that and how you get them to connect with their workforce. Um, it And communication... Um, is about that consistent, reliable message. And I, I tend to think some of that's been a, a little little lost recently in, in the, it, you know, the tendency internally for us to want to start using social media internally, use blogs, this kind of thing. Um, I think they are very useful tools, but you still have to remember that people need reliable, mm. um, consistent mm communication channels and messages as well. Okay. Now, we'll pick that apart because I think that's uh, that's interesting and there's a lot in that last answer that you just gave us, which I think we can really drill into. But interestingly around the process of content communication, uh, we talk about um, for a specific audience. Now, we're not just talking about a specific external audience, which it can be applied to, but a specific internal audience. So this notion of creation, curation and distribution of useful, relevant, consistent content is perfectly applicable um, to internal communication. I think that's something that we can um, discuss as well. But maybe if I might pick up one of the points just to start with, and it's that sense of you know, abundance and access now in terms of communication that there are so many channels and we can all become publishers and we can all, and, you know, there's just a, waves and waves and waves of information and people think that they're communicating by continually, you know, copying people in on emails and thinking that that's doing the trick. How big a, yes, it's a great gift, but at the same time, it's a it, it, it's a huge challenge as well. How do you get people to understand how to best use this gift that they now have to be uh, the media on behalf of their organisation internally? Well, I still think that even in this age of self-serve um, news, internally you need some discipline. People still need to be able to rely on the channels and know what they're going to get when they receive an email from the the, um, the CEO, when they receive an email from part of the business. Um, they need to be able to rely on the relevance of that information 
and on the quality of that information and on the consistency of the channel. Um, I think everything else can happen around that, but if people know that there is a source they can rely on to get information about what they need to do in their job, then they will still rely on that source. And this is a point that we come back to time and time and time again on this podcast is this sense of consistency, you know, this notion of building a habit in your audience around that consumption and that, you know, managing the expectation to know that this particular piece of communication is going to arrive whenever it arrives and it's going to deliver, you know, whatever the value is that the sender has, you know, put into that particular piece of communication. And that it is probably part of a story the organisation is telling you and has been telling you for some time. You would hope. You would hope, rather than it's sort of an indiscriminate piece of another bit of information thrown out there. That's right. And that's what people like me, internal communication specialists, are for, is to make sure that people get the that story in the right sequence, they get the parts of the story that they need at the right time and that the information that they get that's part of the story is useful to them and that they can go off and use in the, in their, their job. Mm. And if you do that for them, then they will rely on what you tell them and they'll act on it and it will be useful. Yeah, it's, it, it's such a good point and I think it's something that, you know, if people take nothing else out of the, this particular half an hour is that sense of consistency and commitment to consistency because it shows respect for the audience that you're speaking to, that you're seeking to engage with because they've got, they're busy. They've got loads of other things to consider. So if you book that appointment and say, okay, I'm going to turn up every you know Tuesday at 2 p.m., I'm going to knock on the door and here is this useful, relevant um, information, which we hope is going to help you. Um, and, and I always tell the story when I was a kid, and I think this is, again, part of what we're doing now, is borrowing the the practices of the great publishers and the home delivery of the newspaper. Uh, and again, I've told this story before on the podcast that, you know, they had me hooked. You know, if, if that newspaper wasn't there at seven o'clock in the morning on the front lawn of my house in Sydney, I would start to get edgy. I would be, you know, looking into the bushes. Where is it? You know, I would have this visceral sense of, you know, I want that information. And I think that's the opportunity, isn't it? If we can build habits and routines in our audience and make it as easy as possible for them, particularly in this age of abundance, that if we can do that, we're going to have a much better chance of imparting that piece of information, that knowledge, that education, whatever it is, in order to enrich the lives of the people who we're seeking to engage. Oh, that's right. And once you've developed that trust with them, you need to make sure that you don't do anything that is going to then break the trust. Yeah. So if they are used to, as you say, receiving something extremely useful and relevant at two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, you have to keep doing that. You have to make sure the information is relevant. You have to not dilute the value of the channel and the brand and reputation that channel and that information has built over time. Okay, so what's your advice then in terms of that consistency and continuing to be able to deliver that value? Is it uh, committing to a cadence of publishing that's manageable or how is it that people can continue to serve up good, relevant, useful information over a consistent basis? I think that's a key word and that's manageable is yeah. don't bite off more than you can chew. Yeah. If you've got a Done sm- that. Guilty. Yes. Guilty. <laughs> if you've got a small team, you have to look at what your small team can produce and yeah. can maintain yeah. and not introduce a channel or a product that is 
going to fade away after the first three months and therefore annoy people because you've started something good and you've stopped it or is going to end up with rubbish in it because you don't have time to collect and to plan the the um the right kind of content for it so I I think that's really important I think there are times that you may build up a really reliable nice uh, channel framework that people rely on for their everyday business as usual activity and you may feed change information through that which is fine and on top of that you may have to do additional work about particular change programs or particular um, innovations that you bring into the organisation or, or new policies or whatever but you have that basis that is manageable and because you've decided what's manageable you've planned what each of your team members can do you've um set up something that within your own um, technical limits will always be achievable. You can keep that reliable source of information going. Now, something that's increasingly is is interesting me is this, you know, introduction of sort of science-based principles into the production, you know, the creation, curation, distribution of useful, relevant, consistent content. Because ultimately what we're doing as we go from our objectives to our understanding of the audience and the story we want to tell, we're going to make choices around channels. We're going to make choices around um, particular content types, be it a newsletter or be it uh, a video or webinar, whatever it is, whatever that execution is. There's this increasing trend to run tests, you know, A-B testing of particular um, activations. Um, What's what's your view on being able to stand up some of those sort of science-based testing where you think, okay, I'm going to run a control group and uh, another group and we're going to send, you know, different types of information or, you know, to to the same group or different types of groups so you can build that evidence to understand whether or not, you know, one is more effective than the other. How, what's your view on that? That's my first question. I think that's very important, but I think it goes to a broader issue in many of the larger organisations I've worked for is that... um, an organisation will say it is science-based or it's evidence-based, except when it comes to comms. I think many organisations do not realise that comms is an expertise that is testable, measurable, and that it should have research at its core. I think many um, communication, marketing and PR graduates come out of university expecting that their careers will be based on that kind of evidence and that kind of research. And you find out that it's actually very difficult to get your boss to invest in a proper piece of research about communication. Why? Um, They just don't think it's worth the money. They don't now, think now, that might be a, a large, you know, say, big piece of, of, of um, research, which, you know, yeah. has a large price tag attached to it. But what about this sense of being able to test different ideas and yeah. being able to A-B test a particular you know, yeah. program? Have, have you had much experience or involvement in doing that? Some, but once again, um, trying to get people to invest in the right. time yeah. and the activity is, is actually quite difficult. I think um, you can usually you know, manage to do that on a s- small scale. But the, the other issue, I think, is especially with internal comms, everyone thinks they can do it. Um, so <laughs> well, that's comms more generally, isn't well, it? Well, you know, it, it is. is it? You know, how hard is it? And, <laughs> and I, I don't think people realise that it actually is, is, is better if the time and investment is spent on that kind of testing. 
um, and your outcome is better and you hone your message better and you can deliver the results a lot better. I certainly think that, you know, as we roll into the future and, you know, technology's transformed the importance of communication now. You know, everyone who we need to connect to is, by and large, on the grid. They're connected. They're carrying around those supercomputers in their Mm -hmm. pockets and purses and so we can get to them. So that problem has been solved. It's then how do we how do we do that? But I think increasingly, as it becomes more important, it really is then how do we assemble the evidence for the higher ups to understand that the investment in communications that will achieve a particular benefit is then worthwhile. You know that if we can achieve a a behaviour change of some sort to stop people doing things or uh, increase productivity and therefore gain. You know, a you know, couple of percentage points in productivity multiplied by salaries could end up in millions of dollars worth of benefits. So I think we as communicators have to take on the challenge of quantifying the benefit that we can deliver, but then we really need to commit to that evidence-based approach where we continue to test and learn around the experiments that we're largely putting in place because ultimately that's what they are, aren't they? We're just taking our best guess based on experience and, other, and perhaps whatever data we've got to think that that's the best execution that's going to meet the needs of that audience to achieve the particular outcome that we're looking for. And I think it increases the the, the credibility of the profession to be yeah. able to do that as well, which is always a benefit for yeah. us. What about those skills, you know, those data skills and the A-B testing skills and the science skills? You know, traditionally, you know, people, we're like you, people who can put a sentence together. You know, we're not mathematics people, we're not no. science people, and we don't, you know, we don't like it really. It's a little bit too complex, a little bit difficult. Um, you know, we like the creative element of it right, as opposed to the sort of the hard science. And really, I don't know if you, you know, what's your view? Is it is it either or or is it a, bit, a little bit of both? Well, I think what... What you have to do as a communicator is once again recognise where your skills are and if that type of measurement is not part of your skill set, you buy it in or you um, you make sure that it's something that you've got access to because you have to realise that at the end of the day it will be a great benefit to you and your career and your ability to do your job if you recognise that that is, is something you need. And it should be, it really should be part, I think, of the um, of the makeup of a communication organisation and it often isn't, yeah. like a, a communication branch or, 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 um, or part of an organisation. You'll see they've got web publishers, they've got gra- graphic designers, they've got editors, they've got writers, they've got all sorts of videographers, all quite sorts of speciality, but that, that evidence based research collecting mm. function is often not there and not considered um, as important as it should be. But sometimes seen as a threat as yes. well in some of those areas. I know of a couple of examples where sort of innovation, data, um, design thinking types, um, behavioural econo- econo- economics have been sort of seen as, you know, barbarians at the gate from the comms people thinking, oh, you know, they're going to come and trample all over my turf here. Whereas I think I think what you're outlining is a, you know, is a much smarter way to go about it is to really, well, how do we integrate, given that we can, you know, there's so much data now in the digital realm and we know that that's where the future is. We know that that's where people are going to be consuming most of their content. So how do we use that? How do we work together to be able to uh, formulate far more robust 
um, solutions, you know, so so is that you can get the outcomes that you're looking for. I think for a long time, um, communication professionals have um, have relied on their instinct. Yes, and I think our instincts are often pretty good, but they're not perfect. No, and I think that as communication becomes more complicated and becomes more digitized and more instant, um, the more we need that research specialization to help us. Yep. Yes, indeed. So to the future, what um, take? Let's go five years down the track. What 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 do you see as driving success in organisations as technology continues to rip through organisations and turn them upside down? The principles won't change, will they? No, I don't think the principles will change. Because people are people, aren't they? People are people, and they still need what they need to do their job. They still need to see leadership. They still need to know what the business is doing and how they fit into the business. And they still need to know when they turn up at work today, what am I going to do today that might be different to what I did yesterday? Mm. So I think the principles are the same. And I also think that um, technology is a, is a, a tool, but there are times when you have to go back to the basics. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, whether you get that message across by... Tying it to the leg of a carrier pigeon <laughs> or on your handheld device, yeah. the aim should really be the same, and that is to support that business to achieve its goals. But you're a massive, massive uh, believer and, and supporter of face-to-face communication, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think these other mechanisms um, should first and foremost support face-to-face, but I still think we need to remember the, the value of, of those face-to-face interactions. Yeah. And just a final question um, around leadership. How do you get leaders who aren't particularly focused on communications interested in communication? Now, that's not a bad question. How do you do that? When you've, you've worked with lots of different people over the time and you've seen, you know, the great communicators all the way through to the person who's got their door locked and, you know, don't come in, but they're a, you know, they've got a brain as big as Texas and therefore, you know, they've massive value, but they're perhaps not valuing communication quite so much. How do you get people who are perhaps reluctant communicators to embrace and engage and, and, and take on the challenge of becoming a better communicator? Well, a couple of things. I think, um, firstly, there, there certainly are people um, at the heads of organisations who are not personally comfortable as open communicators and that's where you really need to offer them the the support of your team, training, skill and offer to take some of that burden off them as much as as you can in terms of um, your own suggestions and, and observations about what would work for them. But the other thing is when you get round to it, people like this actually really like evidence. Um, there are the communicators, the, the CEOs, the leaders who are natural at it and then with the ones who aren't, mm. I think actually having the evidence to show them how it will benefit the organisation really helps. But it's always, it's always too about access and making sure that your communication advisors have access at the top and that it is not a function that is filtered through many layers of bureaucracy because... That's certainly the case is that... That, that ain't going to work. And it doesn't work. <laughs> okay. Well, Julian, thank you very much for joining us on this week's 
uh, edition of In Transition. Lots of value there, audience, I think. Lots of things to think about, that sense of of consistency, that that sense of taking on the challenge of getting the evidence so that you can sell it up the line. We've spoken about this many times over the last few weeks um, of the many, sorry, last couple of years, I should say, about that importance of, of an evidence-based approach and being able to get those numbers and the proof um, that what we do does create value for organisations. And as I've said many times in the past that, you know, technology has changed um, the importance of communication. Everyone who we need to connect with is there. They're on the grid. Um, so our job as communicators is obviously to create that content in a consistent, compelling, useful and relevant way to activate that connection and then start to build that trust, which can ultimately lead to behavioural change. But Gillian, thank you. Uh, once again for joining us in transition and to you audience thank you very much for coming back again this week i will be back at the same time next week with another guest but until then thanks for joining me and bye for now you've been listening to in transition the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector for more visit us at contentgroup.com.au